The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is a great honor to introduce Charlie Spear. Charlie is an attorney with the Spear Law Firm, and I just had to interview him because he has dedicated his career to environmental law, specifically working with the Center to Expose and Close Animal Factories. Charlie, welcome. Thanks for having me, Melinda. Tell me, how did you become interested in working to look at some of these factory farms what piqued your interest in this issue? Well, frankly, it's, it's, it's a little accidental. I tell people that uh, uh, when I was getting ready to go to law school, I didn't dream of being a hog poop expert. But here I am, and I was actually with a, a large law firm, 220 lawyers, and headed up their environmental department and worked for corporations most of my career. And one day, three uh, farmers from northwest Missouri walked into my office uh, Terry Spence, Rolf Kristen, and, and Scott Dye, and explained to me that, uh, and I hadn't heard about it before, but explained to me the confined animal feeding operation with 80,000 hogs uh, being raised in confinement was being constructed near their farms, near their family farms that had been in their families for multi-generations. And uh, when they explained the problem to me, it sounded awful, and they were my first clients. So mm-hmm. that was the start. Well... I have just driven from Ames, Iowa, south into Columbia, Missouri, my home, and the stench from hog farms is so revolting. And I think to myself, how would a governor allow that to happen in his or her state? That can't be good for real estate. It can't be good for tourism. It can't be good for children's health. What's going on here? Well, I suppose the two-word answer is campaign contributions. Uh, these are large, multinational, global corporations that are that are running the show on these things, and they're not good for the economy. The way I put it is, they create lots of low-paying jobs, minimum wage jobs, but they're sucking all the money out of the uh, rural economy and taking it back to Fifth Avenue on, on in New York City. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of farmers raising thirty pigs in the traditional manner that uh, had some odor, but not the uh, odor on steroids that these large CAFOs produce. That traditional farmer spent his money in town, uh, went to the show there, bought his pickup there, employed an accountant and a, and a lawyer there, and kept the money in, in, the, in their community. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that there are lawsuits called nuisance lawsuits. So if a farmer has been living on his land, all of a sudden a, a factory farm moves in next door, the air starts to stink. Maybe there's a fish kill from a flooding of a manure pit. Maybe that farmer wants to file a nuisance lawsuit. How easy is that for the farmer to do? It's not that easy because myself and my co-counsel from Savannah, Georgia, are really the only two lawyers, law firms, prosecuting these cases nationwide. 
And I got to the nuisance cases as a kind of a, a process, if you will. I started out with a Clean Water, Clean Air Act lawsuit in federal court. The EPA joined in on, on our side as an additional plaintiff, and it, it resulted in a consent decree, and that consent decree is still in place. Premium Standard Farms still has to comply with it, uh, but it hadn't changed uh, my clients, the, the neighbors' uh, lives one bit. So even though it was a success from, a, I guess, a legal standpoint, it, it's been a failure for uh, my clients. And my group has also done a what's called a RICO case, racketeering case, and that didn't work so well. So we finally, and we tried public nuisance in North Carolina, and that didn't work so well. So we turned to just old-fashioned common law nuisance, which has been around since 1610 in medieval England. They allowed a nuisance case to go forward where a, a farmer put his pigsty too close to his neighbor. So there's nothing new under the sun. These nuisance laws have been on the books in, in all the states from the, from the from the get-go. It's Law 101, and uh, all the states have it. Hmm. What is the best consumer recourse? What, or when I say consumer, I mean individuals living in rural communities, whether they are family farmers or whether they are teachers or doctors or anyone who is the fabric of these rural communities that suddenly finds themselves living in a horrible stench. I, I Really, they're waste dumps. Oh, gosh, that's a tough question. I'm trying, but these nuisance cases, uh, you know, and of course we've gone after the biggest corporations out there because they have the biggest operations, they're the most well-funded and the most resistant to uh, abating the odor, to, to making their neighbors' lives better. And instead of spending money to clean it up, to abate the odor, to run a better operation, make their neighbors' lives better, they spend money with attorneys. And then they cry foul when they lose badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's a problem of their own making. Hmm. Well, tell me, you've been working in this field for a while now. Have you seen any successes? Have we? Well, we've had a lot of success in our in our litigation, as far as jury verdicts and compensating my clients. But my clients would be the first to tell you that uh, they don't want money; they want their lives back. Right. And as a lawyer, the only thing I can do is basically sue them for money. I tried the clean water lawsuit where we had an injunction and obtained injunctive relief to try to clean up the problem, but they have lawyers and experts, and as I said initially, they make a lot of campaign contributions. So do you think campaign finance reform is the answer really at the heart of this problem? You know, I think the, 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 that, that's a problem, but I think the solution is awareness. Once people realize how these animals are being raised, what they're doing to the environment, uh, what they're doing to the the fabric of rural America, uh, then they then they investigate where their food comes from, hmm. and and they make the choice. When the consumer makes the choice to buy animals or food that's been uh, humanely raised, and uh, what goes in it, then we will see changes. And, I, and I'm not talking about, you know, buying an electric blanket for these hogs. Uh, right. These hogs, are, they spend their entire lives on steel bars. The sows, they can't move. They have sores on their, uh, this isn't the, 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 the animal term, but on their shoulders and on their hips because they're in constant contact with bars. So they have these sores and huge calluses build up. 
They can't lay down on their sides. They can only kind of squat down on their elbows and knees. It's just a miserable life. They never feel the sun on their back or the grass under their feet. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you bring these issues up, uh, what happens is you're you're called an animal rights activist, right? Right, which is kind of funny. I'm smiling here. You know, I've been a Republican all my life and uh, very conservative, and I spent a lot of time on the farm growing up. We had a farm. And, you know, my theory is let's just treat them halfway decent before we eat them. And that should not be controversial. And when people see how these animals are being raised in confinement, they get it. The problem is is that people going to the grocery store don't have a clue how these animals are raised. They see you know, the, the, a picture of a traditional farm on the package of bacon and think that's where it comes from. Exactly. It's not even close to that. You know, it's interesting that you raise this point because I know there are two laws right now on the books. I guess they, they have not been turned into law yet, but one in Iowa, one in Florida that would prohibit people from taking photographs of these situations in factory farms. I'm sure you're aware of this legislation. Absolutely, and it shows the, the, the absolute lunacy of the situation. My clients, and one of them testified in front of the Missouri legislature when they tried to do this last year in Missouri, he said if somebody wanted to take a picture of my barn, I'd, I'd invite them up to the house, uh, give them a cup of coffee and a slice of pie, and tell them to, I'd be proud to let them take pictures of my barn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the reason that these large confined operations don't want people taking pictures is because they don't want anybody to know what they're doing. Exactly. Uh, and once the pictures come out and people can go online and see the pictures, I don't think anybody would say that animals should be treated that way. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I think that there has to be a true crisis before there's change. And the things that concern me as a dietitian are things like antibiotic-resistant infections and the fact that we give animals these low-dose levels of antibiotics so that they have a higher growth efficiency that's really bad for public health. And I fear that unless we can successfully disband CAFOs and stop them and start raising animals more humanely and in smaller lots, that we will have a crisis like non-functioning antibiotics or the loss of an entire species due to, say, one severe illness before we're really going to see a change. Uh, Melinda, you're absolutely right. And one of my experts who's a world-renowned public health expert from Johns Hopkins, he believes that's the number one public health problem with these confined animal feeding operations. And the problem is not with using the antibiotics for treatment. When when an animal has an infection or an illness, it's what we call subtherapeutic use where where it's constantly in their feed. Mm -hmm. And so you're feeding animals constantly antibiotics, and it's compounded by the fact that the animals are all genetically the same. They're all bred to produce a certain kind of meat product, weigh the same. So it's the perfect breeding ground, if you will, for antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And mm-hmm. not only can that be picked up by workers, it can be picked up by neighbors when the, when the fans blow the, the bacteria outside the barns. Uh, those people then go to the school basketball games, get on the airplanes with all of us. And then, of course, there's the the food source where it's in the meat, on the meat, and gets into the human population, the general human population, through that vector. 
Exactly. In fact, there was just a report looking at antibiotic-resistant bacteria. I believe this was a Canadian study, but it's also been done throughout the United States, Louisiana, North Carolina, through Johns Hopkins, looking at antibiotic-resistant bacteria present on meat in meat cases. So really, if you're listening to this program, listeners, please just assume that if you're bringing meat home from a meat case and it comes from a factory farm, treat it as if it has some antibiotic-resistant bacteria on it. Uh, I think that's absolutely right, and we have a case pending right now in Arkansas against Pilgrim's Pride Poultry Company, which is the largest chicken producer. And we're actually work, representing workers at a hatchery. And every worker that's been employed there since 2002 has contracted what uh, I call MRSA, a lot of people call it MRSA. It's an antibiotic-resistant staph infection, which can be lethal, can cause blindness, uh, and all kinds of things you don't want to happen to you. And Dr. Lawrence from Johns Hopkins is our expert in that case, and we believe that we can show that they contracted the MRSA from handling the uh, the baby chicks at that hatchery. Mm. Uh, so this is a huge problem. It's only going to get worse, uh, and you're doing the right thing, Melinda, in educating the public of the of, the, of this very risky health scare. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Charlie Spear. He is an attorney with the Spear Law Firm based in Kansas City, Missouri, but he does work nationally, and he also works with the Center to Expose and Close Animal Factories. Charlie, I have to also commend you on recommending Dr. Robert Lawrence at Johns Hopkins University. And if our listeners want to know more, the Center for a Livable Future, you can Google that and get right to that Johns Hopkins site. I remember several years ago, there was a veterinarian from Johns Hopkins. Her name was Amy Peterson, and she came and spoke up in Kirksville, Missouri, about how the the many paths by which antibiotic-resistant bacteria leave the factory farm. So it could be, as you mentioned, trucks. It could be workers. It could be birds. It could be just any number of factors. But the antibiotic-resistant bacteria, we're so often told in consumer messages that it's related to the fact that we don't take our antibiotics responsibly. But really, the much greater risk is the fact that over 70% of antibiotics are used in the livestock industry. Belinda, you're, you're, you're spot on, and I, there's a lot of different ways I can go with this. But let me just start. You, you talked about the, the ways it can be spread. We call them vectors. Mm-hmm. At these large confinement operations, the waste is oftentimes dumped into lakes of excrement and urine, and it's constantly being circulated through the barns to flush out the fresh manure and urine. And, of course, uh, they're excreting uh, potentially antibiotic-resistant bacteria, antibiotic-resistant staph infection. It gets out there in that lake, and migrating birds can land in those lakes. We have pictures of all kinds of migrating birds landing in these these uh, lakes. They spread it on the fields, just on the surface of the fields, and birds land, of course, on that, geese and so forth. So you have potentially geese going to from coming from the Arctic Circle, stopping in Missouri, picking this stuff up on their feet, and going down to Mexico, and intermingling with the chicken population in Mexico. So it's a it, it's a worldwide problem now, and it can be spread so quickly. I mean, swine flu is probably the best, most recent example of how fast these things can spread worldwide. And I remember that the hog industry, the factory farms, 
they did not like the use of the word swine flu. We had to give it a, a different name. Do you remember that? Absolutely. A funny story. We were in a deposition against one of the, it was actually the largest hog producer in the country at their law firm. And when we went to the restroom, this was during the swine flu outbreak, uh, we noticed a printed page up on the mirror that said, be sure and wash your hands thoroughly because of the swine flu outbreak. And so we get back to the deposition and laugh about it, that they're called, their own lawyers are called it swine flu. And uh, uh, the sign changed the next day to H1N1. Right, <laughs> right. Oh, the propaganda runs so thick, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. You can't, you can't even pay close enough attention to, to catch it all. Exactly. We were driving through eastern Colorado this past spring, and there the cattle ranches, of course, are huge, the cattle confinements. And the air, we thought maybe we were coming down out of the mountains and coming into a fog with more humid air, and it was actually the dust from the cattle confinements. And I, I actually kind of investigated this. I went back and I spoke to somebody at the uh, Colorado Health Department, and I was told that the agricultural industries do not have to follow the same regulations for air control, air quality control. Is that pretty much a ubiquitous situation where you know if you've got a lot of if you've got a lot of money, you can sidestep the law? I think that is just the general rule. If you have a lot of money in this country right now, you get special treatment. But as far as the environmental laws, the federal environmental laws applying to agriculture, it applies equally to agriculture. I've had this discussion with environmental lawyers about how this reminds me of the 70s when I first started practicing law and companies were resisting the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. They wanted to keep putting the paint in the creeks from the auto factories pushing it out the stacks, and they fought and resisted. And my environmental practice when I represented corporations was always, this is the future. It's going to happen. We have to stop the pollution. So when you're adding an addition to your factory or you're building a new factory, anticipate what the laws will require and build it in up front. It's good business. And as you've seen now, too, with I can't think of a company right now, but a lot of the car companies talk about how much they recycle. Uh, so the traditional American manufacturing is out ahead of this issue, but the rural areas are three decades behind uh, the enforcement. I often say if EPA would do their job, uh, my law firm wouldn't exist. Uh, mm-hmm. And in fairness to EPA and the, the folks that work there, there's some very good folks, uh, their budgets have been so limited, uh, it's been strangled, that they just don't have the resources to fight a thousand lawyer law firms. Uh, They just can't do it. So uh, that's the niche that we're filling in the country. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of talk, uh, you know, because I'm in Missouri, then I'm familiar with the Missouri Rural Crisis Center. And so much of their work has revolved around protecting local control. Can you talk a little bit about what that really means? Uh, Absolutely. And, And again, this was not an easy process getting to what works, which is health ordinances in the state of Missouri. Uh, there was a township up in uh, Putnam County, which is in northern Missouri on the Iowa border, and they passed a township ordinance limiting confined animal feeding operations, requiring certain setbacks from homes, churches, schools, and the, the company took them to the Missouri Supreme Court, sued them for $20 million, countersued them, and they they won uh, on, on knocking out the... Uh, Township 
zoning, but they didn't win on the $20 million counterclaim. But then Lynn County, and I actually represent Lynn County, passed the first health ordinance in the state of Missouri. They challenged that all the way up to the Court of Appeals, and it withstood challenge, and that's now the template, the model, if you will, for counties that want to enact health ordinances. And it's been helpful in Lynn County in keeping out the, the largest confined animal feeding operations. And the county commissioners then and now are all farmers, and one of the farmers expressed a concern that he didn't want a health ed ordinance regulating his cows in open pasture, and I said, I don't think anybody does, so let's word it so that it doesn't affect you and similar farmers or farmers similarly situated to you. And we did that, and it works. And the Missouri legislature now is trying to restrict counties on local control, which, uh, you know, the Republican Party I was always involved in, we always talked about local control. We want local government to work. So the, the Republicans in, in the Missouri House and Senate are trying to restrict that. Uh, everything's been kind of turned on its head. It has. Well, if you could develop a few billboards and a few consumer messages, what would you want consumers to know and do to to help turn this thing around? Oh, gosh, it's, it's like on every issue. Just, just try to pay attention. I mean, we're all swamped. We're all busy with our jobs and our families. It's hard to, to keep up on every issue, and uh, but it is important who you vote for and, and where they stand on these issues. And, and look at look at all of their policy positions. Uh, you know, you may like their policy position on on A, uh, but they're awful on protecting the, the consumer, protecting the, the neighbors, protecting the, the family farmer that's been here for generations. So, I just encourage people to, to just. Try to be as aware as they can and, and look behind the issues. And there's a lot of single issue voters these days. And mm-hmm. I encourage people not to vote just on a, on a single issue. Uh, there's lots of issues out there that are important. Mm-hmm. Do you think that with all the money really controlling the kind of legislation that we see, do you think that that consumers really have a chance with regard to calling their legislators and letting them know about? these kinds of issues, do we have a voice anymore? Absolutely. Yeah, it may be just one vote, but uh, politicians uh, need those votes to get elected. Uh, they listen. Uh, the last election cycle, uh, state senator by the name of Wes Schumeyer, who was very strong on these issues, he was a farmer, and he could speak articulately the subject. Two weeks before the election, $50,000 mysteriously appeared in his opponent's campaign coffers. Uh, it was so he was defeated, and it was just uh, impossible to fight that kind of money. But uh, if people pull together uh, and speak up and watch who they're voting for, and as I said earlier, most importantly, uh, be aware of what you're buying at the, at the grocery store, what you're feeding your children, what you're feeding your family. Uh, that's maybe the one most important thing. Yeah, I definitely recommend that people be aware of what they're consuming. Unfortunately, what I see happening in the marketplace is that many of our choices are dwindling. And one of the barriers to getting more of the locally produced, small family farm produced meat is our lack, at least in Missouri, of distributors and processors. So it becomes very hard to get the higher quality meat that we really all should be consuming. It is hard, and if you go to 
grocery store like Whole Foods, it tends to be a little more expensive than the grocery stores that have the mass-produced meat, mass-produced everything. But it's important, and and maybe we can limit some of the uh, meat we eat. All the doctors say we eat too much meat and poultry and uh, should cut back anyway. And I'm not a vegetarian by any stretch of the, of the imagination, but uh, it is important what we eat. And uh, it's important, I think, to eat raw ingredients, not to eat all this processed food. But I realize not everybody can afford the the freshest food, and there's transportation issues. You know, can they can you get to a store easily easily enough that has the has the good products? So it's a challenge. You said something earlier that I would like to discuss, and that is that some of the farmers that you speak to say we don't want the government telling us what to do, and I hear that so often. And I was talking to a marketer the other day, and he said every time we talk about the government, we should put it instead of using the word the. We should use the word our and understand that we are the government and we must be involved and pay attention, as you say. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's clever. I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember that. <laughs> uh, and farmers traditionally are, are individualists and the rural lifestyle promotes that. And, and the creed was always, you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And the problem now is these giant confined animal operations are, are affecting people way beyond their fence lines. And it's tough because you, you, you there's nobody to talk to. Uh, you drive by these big operations and you don't see any people, you don't see any animals. I mean, there's no place there that you can see driving their tractor, you can walk up and say, hey, the odor's pretty bad here. Or we got a football game this Friday night. Can you Can you keep the odor down? Can you do something? So you're dealing with this faceless enemy, and, and you're not dealing with a neighbor that you see at church or at the at the football game. So there's going to have to be regulation. And if the politicians don't see fit for whatever reason to properly regulate these facilities, then we have the court system. And that's, that's what I'm using. Uh, it, it's a limited tool, if you will. I don't have all the tools in the toolbox. We really don't have an effective way to go after treatment of the animals, mistreatment of the animals. We're just starting on the, the lawsuits involving antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So it's limited what I can do, but we're trying, and, uh, and I'll come back to it again. The consumer, by, by their choices they make at the grocery store, are going to make the biggest difference. If people want to keep up with your work, how is there a website that you would recommend? Uh, very much so. Uh, the Center to uh, Expose and Close Animal Factories, which is called CCAF, has a website called CloseAnimalFactories, all one word, dot org. And we try to keep it updated uh, as we go, but it may be a little bit outdated. But uh, you can see a lot of information there. You can get contact information for me, my co-counsel uh, from Savannah, Georgia, and also other sources. We talked about Dr. Lawrence earlier uh, in the show, and he was one of the, the head guys producing the Pew Commission report on animal factories. It's capital P-E-W, and if you just Google Pew and animal factories, it should pop up. And if you want to learn more about uh, all of the problems associated with these, uh, I'll call them animal factories, uh, then that's a, that's a great place to start. Charlie, we're out of time. I'm sorry that we've got to stop our conversation. It's been terrific. We've been speaking with Charlie Spear of the Spear Law Firm. He works very closely with the Center to Expose and Close Animal Factories. 
I want to thank you for your work, Charlie, thank our listeners for tuning in, and to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri.